Hi, this is Robert, one half of the 12 Pound Podcast. As a quick reminder, 12 Pound Podcast discusses life's changes and how we hope to help you face them through shared stories and experiences. Welcome back to season two and our first 12 by 20 of the year. Our 12 by 20 bonus episodes are shorter interviews with interesting people who have experienced the challenges changes can bring and what they've learned from them. Past guests have included authors, athletes, artists, academics, and business founders. And I'm excited to start off this new season with somebody who fits all of those criteria in one sentence. So Christina Wallace, Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, we appreciate it. It's Friday afternoon. I'm sure you've got plans this weekend. So <laughs> we appreciate you starting your weekend off with us. I mean, plans with toddlers just means 48 hours of no childcare. So I, <laughs> I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I completely understand. I also have a toddler at home who I feel like I'm, every morning I wake up now, I feel like I know I'm going to get mistreated by this child. <laughs> But and the only question is when and when. how. Exactly. Exactly. So so now that we know that we have that in common, I'm excited to be able to speak with you. <laughs> but before we get started, I wanted to share just a brief background of yours for our audience. Sure. Uh, Christina is a senior lecturer in the Entrepreneurial Management Unit at Harvard Business School, where she teaches entrepreneurial marketing and the entrepreneurial manager in the MBA program. Uh, she also co-leads Startup Bootcamp Immersion. Her latest book, The Portfolio Life, How to Future-Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card, will be published in April of 2023. Christina, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on all your success. And uh, once again, thanks for being here. Sure. It's uh, it's funny to finally be at the precipice of the book coming out because uh, it's been like just this thing in my life for so many years. <laughs> there's like the idea for the book. There's the noodling on, should I turn this into a book? No, I don't need that. Right. And then there's the writing of the proposal and then you sell the book and then you have to write the book and then you're editing. And it's just like this this relationship you have with this entity that only really exists between you and your computer for years. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it's going to be out in the world. And you're like, oh, crap. Whew. Does it make you feel vulnerable? <laughs> it does. You've, you've shared a lot of your life publicly, at least your professional life publicly. But uh, I, having read it, and thank you for sending me a copy in advance, uh, there, there are certainly a lot of personal elements to it. So uh, what's that process like in terms of making the decision to really kind of put yourself out there? Yeah, so I only have one MO, which is I'm an open book. I, I don't really know how to do any other way. Um, and, and I've been pretty open about my life and my challenges and um, kind of uh, ever since I started writing uh, for Forbes, writing in other venues, um, I, I did some sort of creative nonfiction writing uh, uh, several years back talking about my father and, and sort of the, the origin story of, of who I am uh, and my family. So I've always kind of put pieces out there because it's the only way I know how to communicate. But putting it all in one place and having it, um, having all those dots connected between who I am and and what that's taught me and what I did as a result, right? Like that's sort of a, a level of um, introspection and vulnerability that I haven't had before. So it will be interesting to see 
what the reaction is. Um, you know, this is my second book and the first one was just very business. It was about uh, innovation for large companies and I co-authored it with a, a colleague and my last company. And so it was kind of like, well, if they hate it, like it's just the ideas they hate. This feels very much like if someone gives me a one-star review on Amazon, which they will because people, um, it's going to feel very personal. <laughs> that sounds like a chapter because people. Because people, right? Like we know people. So, um, so yeah, I think there is, there is an element of this that is very exciting to finally have it out in the world, but also an element that feels a little bit scary. Well, I can imagine. Well, it's admirable that you're taking, uh, you've taken yourself through that process and you're putting yourself out there. I think that's what makes uh, good books, great books is to move from uh, kind of the impersonal to the personal. And that authenticity tends to come out pretty, pretty strongly. So we appreciate that. And as I, as I mentioned to you before, before we started recording, this podcast is really predicated on change and the changes that people go through in their lives. And what we've experienced, at least in the in the few you know short uh, months that we've been doing this podcast, is that shared stories tend to be kind of the I wouldn't necessarily call them, call it the panacea that helps you get through things, but it helps you get through things. So I, I would love to hear from you. It, it sounds like you've been through quite a few changes in, in your career and in your life. We Kids, obviously, is the, the obvious one. Ooh, but Yeah, that was a change. I, um, <laughs> if you could share some, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, it's funny because I, when I, I think back to where change first really introduced itself in my life. It wasn't until my junior year of high school. Up to that point, you know, I lived in the same bedroom my entire childhood, right? We literally never moved. We went to the same church. Like I had the same kind of group of kind of friends, or I would say maybe lack of friends. I was a little bit of a weirdo and so didn't really have any friends. Um, and had this very stable childhood, but what was consistent about it was that it just didn't really suit me. It, it, it was it was limiting in so many ways that I knew from a, a very early stage I wanted to get out. I wanted to get out of my town, out of Michigan. I wanted to, to in many ways, I knew I wanted something else. Um, and to the point where like I would sneak out of bed in the seventh grade and, um, you know, unwind the the phone cord that would connect the computer to the telephone and get on line. Um, Showing your age. <laughs> yep. Yep. My 14 four modem um, and, and would like download college applications and started working on my college essays in the seventh grade because I, I wanted out. I wanted something else. But in my junior year of high school, I ended up going to Interlochen Arts Academy, which is a performing arts boarding school. And I show up and the like it, it's still in Michigan, but it couldn't have been more different if I tried, right? I I was, it's got a huge international population. Um, it was very uh, diverse, very, you know, uh, liberals and and um, people of color, like all these things that were not part of my childhood and um, and people who dreamed really big dreams. Mm -hmm. You know, the kids who go to Interlochen end up going to Juilliard and they end up joining the New York Philharmonic or performing on Broadway or being shown at the Whitney Biennial. Like these are kids who become working artists and they're not afraid to say out loud at 15 that that's their dream. And that gave me permission and a space to really consider what else was out there that I might be interested in. And from that point on, 
I, I think for the next 20 some years, I leaned into change where change became the normal. I, I went to college in Atlanta and then I moved to New York and then I went to business school in Boston and then went down to DC and then I quit a job to become an entrepreneur, right? Like I was constantly on the, on the move. Um, I, I like quite literally I've lived in so many apartments. I'm like an expert at moving <laughs> at this point. Um, and actually one of the great challenges of this phase of my life is to stay still. Um, that's what change looks like for right now. Was that challenging as you were thinking, as you were coming out of, uh, you know, being a co-founder and starting your own business as you're going, you know, interviewing with Harvard, for example, did you have to convince them that you were going to stay still? (laughs) (laughs) So luckily, no, because the nice thing about the senior lecturer track, right? We have this entire layer of practitioner faculty at HBS um, who don't have PhDs, are not tenured track. And that's the point. Like you literally can't be tenured. Um, but they they want this sort of tour of duty mentality. Come in, spend a few years, teach the students, uh, make those bridges, those connections between the real world, the network, the um, the ideas that that are going into practice right now, and then you know cycle out and go back and do, take the next role in business and or start the next company, and maybe you come back again twenty years later. So. It actually felt very comfortable to to approach this as the next phase to say like, okay, like we're not making any commitments here. So it's like every year we reassess if this is still working. And um, and so that felt uh, uh, reassuring that I wasn't signing up for a 10 year stint. But but what has become clear, I'm in my third year here, what has become clear is like, this is a really good fit for my family at this stage, that I have the autonomy and the flexibility. And uh, it's just, it's the perfect role for what I need with with young children. And my husband found a fantastic opportunity here. And Boston is just a really great place to raise a family. It's a lot easier than Brooklyn was. And <laughs> in many ways, it's like, oh, this kind of fits. Like maybe we should just stay still for a few years. Uh, And I love that notion. And then there's also in my gut, there's like, or you could pack a backpack and go somewhere else. (laughs) Do you still, that does that still tug at you a little bit? I mean, you've, you've had a lot of adventures. Uh, Anybody, anybody who follows up this podcast with reading your, your biography on your website, will we'll see pretty quickly that you're, you're quite adventurous. So it's interesting coming to someone who, who maybe was, um, uh, you know, a little bit more introverted as a younger person, you you, you seem now you, you've become quite extroverted, not just in what you do, but who you are as a person. What was that change like? And how do you, how do you think you, I, I hate to use the word come out of your shell, but no, but I think it's consistent. You know, I, I, part of it was just learning how to, to have friends, how to be among peers. It's just sort of like a social layer. I just didn't really develop until uh, the second half of my teenage years in college. And I'm grateful to a great number of friends who kind of took me under their wing and they're like, mm, that's not how you talk to people <laughs> or, or like, Hey, this is, this, this are some basic social manners. Like this is how the world works. And I was like, Oh, like that's super helpful. Um, so, so once I felt a little more fluent with that, um, I realized that there was all of this world out there and I really wanted to see it. And Part of, I think, the benefit of being a loner as a child is that I wasn't afraid to do a lot of these things by myself. So when I, um, my first job out of college was at the Metropolitan Opera. 
And I worked on the management side um, as a rehearsal associate. And one of the great pros of this job, um, in addition to like keeping an evening gown in my office in the event I had to, you know, go to a performance on any random Tuesday, was that um, you couldn't take any days off ever during the performance season. It's a little rough. But then you got six weeks, consecutive weeks of paid vacation every summer, which does not happen in literally any other job. And so at 23, I had six weeks and nothing to do. And I was like, well, none of my friends have this same benefit. So I either have to go and see the world by myself, or I'm just going to sit at home for six weeks. And that seems like a really stupid choice. And so I I packed a backpack and I booked a ticket to, uh, I think, to Germany that summer. And I ended up backpacking around Germany and Switzerland and the Netherlands. I had never traveled by myself. Uh, I had only been to, uh, I think, I've been to England once at 15, but like otherwise was not really. And this is, again, pre-smartphone, pre-internet. Like you were paying, you know, 10 bucks an hour at some internet cafe to like, figure out what time your flight was. Um, But it taught me how to be comfortable on my own and how to make friends, how to talk to anyone in any context. That makes sense. And after that, then I was like, okay, where else can I go? And so the next summer I did Central America. And then when I was at business school, I backpacked around East Africa and climbed Kilimanjaro. And and then I was like, let's go to Peru and do, I don't know, a yoga retreat in Cusco. And so I, I ended up having some really fantastic adventures because I wasn't afraid to go alone and meet people along the way. And I think that skill set became incredibly helpful as an entrepreneur, where you, you start out not knowing basically anything, <laughs> and you have to gather compatriots along the way and kind of win them over on some vision of what it is you're building and, and do it together, right? And I think um, that that comfort with ambiguity and with uncertainty um combined with you know the ability to 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 pitch a story pitch a dream and and recruit others along the way like that might be my secret sauce well it sounds like interesting based on that experience being an author can also be a quite lonely journey when you're in your office trying to put out pages so when you when you first sat down uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the genesis of the portfolio life and you know it, it, you're absolutely right one thing we we tell our students here at Drexel University in terms of the 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 entrepreneurial journey is get ready to be alone and get ready to feel alone because there are times where you feel like you're the only person in the world who cares about this business and you're constantly selling. You know, you're selling your idea, you're selling yourself, you're selling your business, you're selling your pitch book. So as you think about, again, the, the genesis of a portfolio life, wh- where did it originate with and, and, and why a portfolio? So I tend to build things to solve my own problems and the portfolio life is absolutely in line with that. I first used the term portfolio life. It turns out I don't, I didn't even remember that I used it this early, but I used it while I was a student here at HBS doing my MBA. I was talking with a friend, Julie, uh, and we were getting kind of close to graduation and everyone was sort of locking in their jobs. And I just, I chafed at this idea that I would pick one thing and then do it for 10, 20, 40 years. And I said, I don't, I don't want a linear 
career. I don't even, I don't even want a portfolio career. I want a portfolio life. And this idea first came from portfolio theory from my finance classes. It was the first time that I had a model for understanding why I liked having a diversity of income streams, a diversity of projects, a diversity of networks. It's this idea that I could do, you know, a, a basket of things and not only were they fun, but they actually introduced a de-risking element. They introduced this sort of diversification and this autonomy, right? It almost, it gave me some control by never feeling like any one thing, if it got pulled out from under me, would, would destroy everything. So I apparently used it then. I did not even remember this conversation until my reunion last year when I ran into Julie and she's like, I can't wait for your book. I like, do you remember that conversation? And I was like, no, I do not. But thank you for reminding me. Um, so I started with the idea then. And then I sort of forgot about it for a few years. And I was writing, I was a columnist for Forbes for several years. And so I was writing these blog posts on and off and, and doing some speeches here and there. And I sort of started putting together the pieces of what would become the book. So the nice thing was once I, I sold the proposal and started writing it, I literally could just take these like V1s of a lot of these ideas and like plop them in the manuscript. So there was never a point of like staring at a blank page being like, where do I begin? <laughs> um but I, I started kind of noodling on these pieces, which is like, I have never been just one thing. I've never wanted to do just one thing. I wanted to be at the intersection of these different ideas, these different networks, these different worlds. And I needed a framework in some ways to legitimize what I'd already chosen I wanted for my life. Because without that term or that framework, the easy thing to do would be to describe it as being flaky or a dilettante. Hate that word. Um, and I, I don't feel that. I feel like a lot of this is strategic and intentional, but I needed a way to organize it. And that's where the portfolio life came from. But it, it comes down to this idea that like this constant disruption that we're feeling, you know, financial, political, uh, environmental, technological, this, these, these world shaking disruptions that seem to be happening like every, I don't know, five to seven years, they're not going away. And, and this world where you, you know, you pick a college major, you start down a path, you sign up with a company, and then you just stay there working your way up some ladder like this doesn't exist anymore and our poor parents who are trying to help us out like they're giving us this really well-meaning advice but it doesn't work and so the proposal the model is think about your life like a portfolio allocate a big chunk of it to work for whatever allocation you want to give it but also think about the allocations you give to your hobbies potential personal growth areas, things you want to learn more about. Maybe you're not monetizing them today or yet, but they might become the next step in your career later. Um, your family, your rest, your health, all of these things that you can't take for granted. And you, you balance all of these things that are in your life at any given time. You have to balance it in a portfolio. You only have 100% of time. Um, and of energy. And, and so you have to think about the mix. And then 
if and when your life changes, rebalance, make a different mix. So when I went from not having children to suddenly having children, I mean, it wasn't all that sudden. It was like nine and a half months, but still, um, that required a really significant rebalancing of my portfolio. And there are several elements that I love dearly that are currently at a 0% allocation. And I look forward to the day where they can find their way back into the mix, but they just don't work for this phase of my life. Um, And that's okay, but they're not gone forever. And I think that's this idea. You're never going down any path where you're like, well, this is it. And everything else is off the table. No, there's so much optionality out there. So, so really just think about what do I need for this chapter and how do I ensure that I have the right allocations, that right mix that helps me diversify. It also helps you think about your identity greater than your job title. So that if and when you get laid off or fired, or as it occurred for my first major life crisis, having my first company completely fail, um, you don't lose who you are simply because you lost your paycheck. Um, And then, you know, really thinking about the zigs and the zags or the possibilities of connecting the dots in the optionality that it gives you to stay really flexible and future-proof your career because, like, the jobs in 10 years don't even exist today. Oh, I think that's great. I mean, it makes a lot of sense in terms of balanced portfolios, thinking about an all-weather approach to how you approach your life. Um, I, I, I did, I really enjoyed the fact that you dedicated a chapter of your book to failure. Um, with kids, especially with a toddler, I fail every morning. I'm failing right now. I'm failing right now with potty training. Uh, and so, and so is my rug, so are my rugs. So, um, but I, there was one aspect to it, which I really enjoyed. Could you share with us how to practice failing? Yes. So failure, ah, oh, it like such a scary idea. And I think for anyone who has never failed yet, there's a perception that if you play your cards right, you never will fail. And I, I want to puncture that perception. You will, you will fail. I mean, I teach at Harvard and my students have gotten here by not failing yet. <laughs> and I, and I need to emphasize whether it's professionally or personally or both, you will fail. And so how can you practice getting good at failure? And one of the biggest ways you can practice is to practice failing small, right? You you see what it's like to say, I think this is going to happen. I'm going to try this and it may not happen. And I will, I will learn how to react to that that difference between what I hoped would happen and what actually happened. Like that's what failure is, right? It's just the, the space between what you hoped would happen and what actually happened. And there are, there are these sort of three buckets of the costs of failures that you can think about and you can prepare for. You can actually, in advance of a failure, have a safety net built in around the financial costs of a failure, the social costs, the sort of self-perception that other people might have, and then the psychological costs of like, how do you react when what you hoped would happen and it doesn't line up with what does happen? And so one of the ways that I practice failing that I write about in the book is that I took up long distance running. (laughs) 
which um, I am not a natural athlete. Uh, it is not, it is not my forte. I'm actually a very, very slow runner, but I took up long distance running half marathons and then full marathons because I needed to break the psychology, uh, my psychology that says I only do things that I'm good at. And I realized I wanted to reframe that narrative to, I show up and try really hard and I give it my best and it may not turn out and that's okay. And right. And, and I needed to practice that. And so I took a long distance running because well, a, it doesn't require a lot of gear. Um, and then B like, I'm so slow that, you know, a half marathon is like two and a half hours of me over and over, like every step being like, I am terrible at this <laughs> and I'm going to keep going. And it gave me the opportunity to to change my internal narrative and to get better at well did you do your best great it was worth showing up for um and it got me more comfortable with like getting back up and trying again and there are lots of other ways right this is this is my way um you could take a, a sales career actually sales is a perfect opportunity to get good at failing because most sales pitches don't go anywhere um you can, uh, I, there's some studies around how do you socialize kids to be better at failure. Certainly sports is a big opportunity to, you know, unlike I, I argue that I played in orchestras and that was sort of my team sport. The thing is no one loses an orchestra concert, right? Like there's mm -hmm. no clear loser there in sports at the end of a game, there's a winner and there's a loser. So there mm -hmm. is that, that very specific, um, space between what you hoped would happen and what did happen yeah, that you can in, get good at. Absolutely. Yeah. I think in the arts as well, actors, you know, if you're auditioning for a role, Ooh, uh, it's yeah. also very difficult. Yeah. Well, Christina, this was wonderful. Thank you for introducing us to you, introducing us to your upcoming book, The Portfolio Life. We'll put a link, uh, the Amazon link to the book on our website to ensure that everybody sees when it comes out and they can hopefully pick up a copy because... It was a wonderful read. I really appreciated, as I said before, you sending it in advance so I could prepare adequately for this discussion. <laughs> uh, but um, if you want to learn uh, more about uh, Christina, you can check out our website at 12poundpodcast.com. There will be a link to her website as well as a link to her book on Amazon. And again, Christina, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon.